You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. Welcome to your local watering hole for all things geeky. I am just one of your hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and with me as she is every single week, the one, the only, Christy Morris. Yes, with my sword and my feather and my cap and my lovely blue and silver cape. Oh, it's a very nice cape. Yeah. We even have a flag. Ooh, that's good. (laughs) Oh, man. Um, I'm excited about this (laughs) with this episode because we are going to talk about a movie that I've been watching since it came out. Um, So uh, I guess I guess gave away part of the outline. Anyway, um, before (laughs) we dive into the episode where we're talking about the Three Musketeers from 1993 um, from Walt Disney Pictures, uh, make sure you're uh, looking for us everywhere. I did want to say a quick thank you. We got a review over on uh, Apple Podcasts from Jedi DS saying, wonderful show and wonderful host, five stars. This podcast is a blessing. Thank you for all you do. May the force be with you always. We appreciate that thought, uh, Jedi DS, because, um, wow, that made me feel really good when I read that. Aw, thank you so much. That that was really just really kind words. Thank you. Yeah. It's um, so if you would like to uh, leave us a review, go over to, uh, you know, Apple Podcasts and give us a star rating review. We'll read that out in the show. You can find us wherever you get your podcast to Spotify or any other podcatcher. Uh, of course, you know, you can find us on uh, Twitter now at the 602 Club. And then we're on Instagram, too, at the 602 Club TFM. Um, so both places, make sure you're following us uh, because we're going to be doing a drawing for followers of those two accounts there uh, to Amazon. We're going to be giving away a $25 gift card. And well, honestly, we'd love for you to be the winner. All you got to do is follow us. At one of those places. So that's pretty great. Uh, and yeah, share the shows. Talk to us about what you've got going on, uh, what you're thinking of the show, and you know any thoughts you have on the movies we're talking about or, or the entertainment news of the day. Of course, you can find us on Twitter for the entire network at TrekFM. We're on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. There's a listeners-only discussion group called the Babel Conference. You can join and talk to listeners from all over the world. Uh, and then truck.fm is a place you can go and check out everything we've got going on the network. Um, plus, you can go to the contact section and write Christy and I an email. So all of those places are places that you can find us, follow us, like us, subscribe, all of that. And, of course, we also want to say a huge thank you. We've got some great associate producers through Patreon. Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, Ryan Millett, Daniel Noah, thank you so much for supporting the show and all that you do for the network through Patreon. Patreon is the way that you can support the network and make sure all of the shows are coming to you each and every week. We have so much going on in the network. And honestly, every little bit helps to make sure that happens. So again, go to patreon.com, see how you can be part of the team. So Christy, uh, as I mentioned, movie came out in 93. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I'm interested to know what your original experience with this, because you are a little bit younger than I am. 
Not too much. It really, it wasn't that bad. But I actually, it's funny, usually my stories about me and my dad, but this one I vividly remember because I was at one of my cousin's houses and saw it when it had recently come out. Uh, she happened to have the videotape, if anybody nice. remember those. <laughs> and uh, she's a little bit older than me, so she, she was always kind of like my big sister. And so I, I remember sitting down in her living room floor and watching it together, and I was six years old. So Nice. That's yeah. awesome. That's awesome. You know, um, I, I'm trying to remember if I had seen this in the theater or... If it was something that I saw later on. And I honestly, it's been so long, I just can't remember. But this mm-hmm. is definitely a movie that, you know, I grew up with. And we, we yeah, definitely same. had the VHS the tape the same, like, you know, um, like that you guys had. And it was a movie that was in, you know, I would say heavy rotation for me growing up. And mm-hmm. so this is definitely something that's just kind of a part like you know you you have those movies like that are part of your childhood whether it was like if it was like Goonies or some, for some people it was uh you know like the never ending story or something like that and so yeah this has just been with me for a long time and so um definitely biased towards the movie yeah uh, because it's something i grew up with so i mean do you feel that way too about this one oh for sure nostalgia is the word with this movie for me it's you know like you said on the, along the same ranks of never ending story for me also princess bride things like that are just the classics i remember and like romanticize yeah yeah so i just think it's just really um it is really interesting these type of movies when you go back to them um and something that i was really uh, interested in to go then because of that you know, by at that point in life, like I was, you know, 14. So I, I wasn't into really yet production of movies and, 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 and getting, you know, going to check out what their, you know, reviews were and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I was really fascinating to learn that, you know, this is a movie actually that quite a bit of, of people wanted to be in, um, you know, Chris O'Donnell obviously gets the role of D'Artagnan, but I didn't know that Brad Pitt and Steven Dorff had actually turned down the role for D'Artagnan. So that would have been really interesting if one of those two had shown up as D'Artagnan. And I especially think of, you know, Brad Pitt and where he went in life. Um, you know, it would have been very different movie i feel like with with him as the main lead for sure it's interesting though because if you think about just even the look of the character at that time in filmmaking brad pitt had kind of a similar look to chris o'donnell at this age you know like he was kind of that character if you ever saw like a river runs through it or um yep yep yeah so you know totally the like dashing hero kind of character and i i could totally see him in this role so i am surprised to see that he turned it down though yeah and i mean it's um i mean i'm not sure as to why you know he would have at that point it may have just been he was too busy or wasn't really necessarily interested you know in in you know doing the the film at that point um you know i'm trying to think of of just the things that 
he would have been doing it. I mean, I think the biggest thing, you know, he would have been in a river runs through it that would have been something that had kind of really put him in the map because Robert Redford had directed that. It was kind of a big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah. And then, I mean, he was in California too. Um, yeah, it, it's just really interesting. I mean, uh, and that might have been one of the reasons too. Maybe he couldn't do it. You know, he had, he had done both of those movies and when this one's filming, maybe he couldn't. Um mm-hmm. I mean, he may have just honestly uh, have wanted to do um, those movies instead. I mean, he was in Cool World 2 in 92. So, I mean, yeah. Uh, Oh, he was probably filming Interview with the Vampire. He could have been doing that, too. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Which, you know, obviously a huge deal, um, you know, really uh, puts him on the map uh, and, and something that, you know, doing that with tom cruise it can and i can imagine turning this down to do that mm-hmm. um i was also really interested too i mean like disney was going after some really big people you know you they were going after like william baldwin john claude van damme interestingly enough uh, mm-hmm. al pacino johnny depp carrie Ulls, and gary oldman all as characters to be in this movie and i could kind of see some like i'm pretty sure al pacino they probably would have wanted is is you know carnal richler is my guess uh, or gary oldman in that role uh mm-hmm. maybe carrie Ulls is is playing the uh captain rochefort maybe possibly or maybe one of the the um musketeers i, I don't know yeah um but just i they were they were definitely going after people um they they wanted this to be a big deal and i, I think you know, we can kind of see from who gets cast. You know, they they were going after some big, you know, uh, late 80s, early 90s stars t- mm-hmm. to make this a thing. So I thought it was interesting, too. And I didn't know this because, you know, this is well before, you know, getting cool extras on anything as well, for the most part. Right. That uh, Kiefer Sutherland and Chris O'Donnell and Oliver Platt, they had had to do... Uh, six weeks of fencing and riding lessons, which is really cool, which I think actually really makes sense. And then uh, Charlie Sheen missed that because he was doing Hot, hot Shots Part due. But honestly, mm-hmm. I felt like um, that may have been one of the things that really stood out to me the most as a kid in this movie. Because I grew up watching like Earl Flynn movies and things like that. And uh, I always really loved the sword fighting in this. So I felt like they did a great job of of creating some good, fun, uh, memorable sword fights between different characters and having it look good as well. So I definitely agree with that. I think that I, I was really trying to tell myself if maybe at times Chris O'Donnell did some of his own stunts. I don't necessarily think he did all of them. I don't know if he's that acrobatic of a person, but... I think that for sure at the beginning, when he does that jump where he puts both hands on the back of the horse and jumps on, I'm going, how? How does anyone do that? You could seriously hurt yourself (laughs) in so many ways. And then, you know, when he also stands up in the saddle and then jumps over the little bridge, just those kind of things, I think, really make it stand out. And as a kid, you know, especially being the ages we were, you're fascinated by that stuff. And then you want to go and try to do it in the backyard. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Well, and I think, um, you know, talking about the sword fights, you know, Bob Anderson, who is known for, I mean, he's a, he was Olympic fencer. He was a well-known, renowned fight choreographer for things such as the Princess Bride, the Mask of Zorro, Lord of the Rings, Mm. uh, Star Wars, uh, Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi. I mean, he is epic. He actually plays the, uh, and he's uncredited as the sword master, uh, who is, uh, teaching the king fencing in the film so my guess is is that that's one of the reasons the sword fights have that kind of classic swashbuckling film uh feel is that he had been responsible for some of our most memorable sword fights on screen you know so um makes complete sense that this would look so good um in that in that way which is really important when you're having a three musketeers movie half the movie is really about this 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 thing which is sword fighting i mean this is what these characters are known for you know this is this is what the the musketeers are famous for uh and so yeah really really appreciate the work that they put into to that part um i was i was so this is the thing that kind of shocked me because i i wasn't into looking at the reception of films at that point you know i was just Mm -hmm. barely getting into any of that kind of thing and I, you know, looking this up now and doing some research, seeing this movie is not really well received back in the day. I mean, it has a very low Rotten Tomatoes score, which at the 28% based on 29 reviews. So that's not very good. Right. Um, I was actually, I think it's one of those things like I, I, I have such a thought process for this film that goes back to being a kid and growing up with it that it never occurred to me that there were basically people who are critics that they didn't like this movie. Or maybe didn't see it at a young age, so they don't have that like same nostalgia that we do. So they're just seeing it as a, a, an adult and thinking... It seems a little silly, I guess, was the overwhelming review that I saw, but still surprised me just like it did you, because it's something that is so beloved, at least by us and by so many people I know. Yeah, I it it just it's it's always interesting to me. And, you know, it's one of those things, too, where I think we can we can clearly see as well. It it reminds me a little bit of how people talk about like the prequel trilogy in reference to kids these days and how, Oh, don't have the kids watch the prequel trilogy. It stinks, you know? And Mm -hmm. yet all the kids that I know that grew up with the prequel trilogy, they love it. Right. Because that was their Star Wars. That's what they grew up with. Yeah. And so it, 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 it just goes to show how, you know, what, what critics necessarily think of a film isn't what, people that actually just watch it are going to necessarily think and i mean i have that response to films these days too that get maybe possibly panned by critics but i still end up liking it you know so it just goes to show that it's it's really not important what critics think it's really only important what you think and if you like the movie um and if you find value in it so and then for me, I know I've mentioned before, there's some movies that I know are just terrible movies. Not this one. Sure. Yeah. Um, but I still love them. Right. I don't care what anybody else says. I'm always going to love Clueless. Don't at me. You know, and I think, <laughs> I think, yeah. So there are many movies which people would call their like guilty pleasure films, right? Mm-hmm. And 
you know, they, they know it's not the world's best movie, but they still get enjoyment out of it. You know, like, hey, I, Blue Crush is one of my guilty pleasure <gasps> films. Me too. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a great film. Yeah. It's, you know, but who cares? Like, I like it. That's yeah. that's really all that matters. Now you uh, want to learn to surf. There you go. Exactly. So, uh, you know, if Kate Bosworth wants to teach me, hey, there you go. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I think, you know, that's, that's, it's, it's just so, like, we get so bogged down sometimes in, in especially in like the, the, the film community of people who are really paying attention to all this stuff. You know, we kind of forget there's a whole segment of the population and it's really a majority of people who are not so heavily invested in, did this movie get good reviews or any of those things, you know? So we just yeah. get kind of myopic in that and we get into these little echo chambers and we think our version of reality, what we're hearing on Twitter is reality. And that's just obviously not the case. And so I am interested. So the cast of the movie, the, there's so many people in this and I figured the best place to start was with Chris O'Donnell because he's the one which the story is revolved around. They've really simplified the story here for the Three Musketeers. And there's a I I this is one of the Dumas books that I have not read. I read um The Council of Monte Cristo, which is a phenomenal book. So I've loved, loved hmm. to one day get a chance to read Three Musketeers. But I do know this is a story that they've really, you know, simplified and, you know, kind of Disneyified in some ways. But D'Artagnan is is the one who the story is kind of revolving around in the sense that he's the eyes through which we're kind of seeing most of the film and everything that's happening. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, Chris O'Donnell has a, has a I think a, a, is a load to carry here big time. Like he, he's the one who, who kind of um, brings us into the film and he, we're kind of really experiencing everything with him. So how do you think he does maybe now that you watch the movie, as an adult, do you still think he does a, a good job or, um, yeah, I'm really interested to see what you think watching this as an adult. I, you know, I really did try to look at it a little bit more objectively, but f- I will say first and foremost, even though people may get annoyed with me, man, that dude's hot. <laughs> and everybody's so young in this movie too. Obviously it's like, <laughs> yeah. So that was the other thing. Like it was like, Oh my gosh, look at, Look at how young everyone is, especially Chris right? O'Donnell. He, he's he looks like a baby. Yeah, uh, in this film, he he's he literally has baby face at yeah. this point. But I, you know, I think that he objectively as well does a really great job of getting across that he's trying to follow in his father's footsteps. The surprise of finding out that uh, Rochefort killed his father, um, and then the whole relationship with each one of the musketeers he's trying to build through it being this unknowing kid that really wants to accomplish this dream, but doesn't really know what he's getting into, still kind of a little naive and immature. So I really think that he holds his own, even though he's got a lot to carry in this movie. I'd love to know what you think. I So, you know, I... Still would say this is a movie that I really enjoy, uh, and I enjoyed rewatching for sure because it's been a while since I'd, I'd revisited it. But I, I think a, a little bit more objectively that the weak link in the cast is actually Chris O'Donnell. I oh, do really? feel like he comes off a little bit too earnest in some places and just too green. 
Um, mm. I think part of that is that he is surrounded by people who have been doing this for so much longer than he has, and they're all kind of effortless in their roles, whereas I can tell how hard he's trying, and I think that just differentiates him from just about everybody else. Um, I I don't think it makes the movie bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, or anything like that. Um, and part of that is because I really like, especially the other three musketeers so much in this film. And to me, him playing off them is, is fine. You know, like he's Mm -hmm. not my favorite part of the movie, so it doesn't matter anyway. Um, but I, I would say for me rewatching this, I can, I do see where, He's not the best part of the movie. And that's okay. I mean, like, I, I, I'm going to give him a break. And part of that is because I really enjoy all the other performances that we get in this movie. Mm-hmm. And him being, I, I guess, the weakest link of that is fine because I really enjoy just about every single other person that's cast in this movie and, you know, um, what they do in the film. I think they do uh, a great job. So. Yeah, uh, you know, I want to mention, too, I think that the way that Kiefer Sutherland relates with him, their characters, you know, with Athos and Mm -hmm. D'Artagnan, Athos really kind of becomes like a father figure to him. And I think that that makes a little bit more up for what you're feeling is lacking. No, I think you're right. Um, You know, I think Kiefer Sutherland, uh, Kiefer is just, he... He brings a lot of gravitas to the role. Part of that is that he's playing the much more kind of serious-minded uh, member of the Three Musketeers, quote-unquote. You know, mm-hmm. like, he he really is. But he's also the more wounded of them, uh, as what's happened with him and Lady De Winter. And so I, I think he plays the role really well. And it, it, it also plays into the fact that Kiefer has... And he kind of has that softer voice, too. So to have yeah. him be the person who's more soft-spoken, but not in the sense that, like, he's weak, but he's soft-spoken in the sense that he doesn't speak a lot, and that when he speaks, it's important. There you uh, go, yeah. You know, I think that's the thing that he brings the role, and that's that was really good casting on their part uh, to bring him in. And like you said, I think you, the way he plays with Chris O'Donnell and kind of being in the end, more of the father figure to him, whereas the other two are like his like crazy twin brothers, right? you know? Uh, and, and so I really appreciate that. And, and it's one of those things, like I think he portrays all of them take something seriously. The, uh, of the three musketeers, uh, Kiefer takes his drinking seriously. Athos takes his drinking seriously. And part <laughs> of that again is the emotional pain that he still carries around from the relationship that he had with Lady De Winter and finding out the secret about her. And and so again, I think they cast him really well because he plays kind of that brooding character really um perfectly. And and then on top of that you have uh Aramis played by Charlie Sheen, who's the kind of the kind of the opposite of that in some ways, but he's he's not the exact opposite he, because he has a part of, like, both of the other characters. You know, Porthos uh, and Aramis. Uh, Porthos is the exact opposite of, of Athos. Yeah. Uh, Aramis, though, is kind of somewhere in the middle. 
And part of that is because he's a man who has been wronged by somebody he thought he could look up to uh, in his faith, and that person was proven to be uh, somebody just using the faith. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But you know, he was he was uh, he was uh, under the tutelage of Cardinal Richelieu, looking to be you know priest. He was studying to be a priest, mm-hmm. uh, and finds him to be a fraud. And so you have him kind of like being this person who's kind of acting out, uh, uh, in some ways, you know, like rebelling against that. Um, you know, he's at the beginning teaching that woman, quote unquote, theology. You know, and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he was. Out, yeah. So, um, but I he. At the same time, he he does the same thing. I I thought that uh, you know Kiefer does his Athos, where he's able to play the more serious moments well, um, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, you know he has that Charlie Sheen kind of glint in his eye, but at the same time, he also is able to take it serious when he needs to. So this was actually a really different side of Charlie Sheen for me because I've usually seen him in more of the goofy stuff um, or, you know, all the Hollywood stories about Charlie Sheen as a person. So seeing him in in this again, um, now being a bit older, it was interesting because they made him more like the Casanova of the group. Yeah. yeah. He's about poetry and theology and, um, the meaning of God in everyone's life, um, you know, it it's just really interesting how they wrote that character and then seeing Charlie Sheen portraying it. I I think he did a really amazing job with it. Yeah. And I and then, you know, to round it out, you have Oliver Platt playing Porthos, who is really just I mean, he is the lovable kind of goofball of the group who is basically the complete hedonist you know he's uh he's just out for the fun of life he oh, you yeah. know his quote of god i love my work you know when he hits that guy with the the um i the, the i don't even know what they call him um you know the the swinging oh, balls you yes. know what i'm talking about oh man and i, I don't Michael know what they're told called, me so yeah yeah um so, but he he really is. He's just a complete hedonist, you know. And and he's somebody who enjoys just the fun of life, you know. And he's like, this sash was a gift to me from the Queen of America, you know. Mm-hmm. Like he just enjoys making things up and being a big goofball. And and uh, he makes me laugh every time. All of his lines I find funny, honestly. Well, so, like yeah. his moment in the fight with the other, um, the guy with two swords on the ship is one of the most memorable moments for me from the entire movie that I still remembered, uh, even as a kid, where the guy stands up, whips out two knives and goes, ah, and then Oliver Platt wields his one sword and goes, ah. <laughs> well, and yeah, and then he beats him in, uh, by, uh, you know, cutting the line and making him fall, which... Yeah is so kind of Indiana Jones, you know, they're, they're kind of riffing on that, um, Raiders of the Lost Ark moment where he just pulls out his gun and shoots him. Yeah. Uh, instead. So no, I, I also always, this ax was a gift to me from the Tsarina of Tokyo. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I just, he's funny, uh, and he's mm-hmm. meant to be kind of the comic relief in the movie. So I think, they did a really good job with uh, with casting him. Um, so, uh, 
so this is really interesting to me uh, because Rebecca De Noire plays Lady De Winter, mm-hmm. and I thought it was fascinating that they had considered Winona Ryder as the role, but she dropped out. But I cannot imagine Winona Ryder at this point playing that role because I just don't feel like she's old enough at all. No, like now that we've seen Rebecca De Mornay in this role, it it needed somebody with that maturity and yes, that exactly. level of ice to the the words mm-hmm. that she spoke. I guess is the best way I can explain it because everything she said, it was either trying to seduce somebody or it was completely cold as ice. And I just don't think that Winona Ryder was ready to play that kind of role yet. And I think you mentioned something that was really, really smart uh, is that she she needed to have that maturity to her because yeah. one of the things about the character is is the way that she uses her sexuality. And, and she that she was supposedly a, widowed. She's right. not a young girl. Right. Right. And 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 a and a and a woman to be able to use her sexuality in the way that she does is usually a woman who is more mature and has a complete understanding as to every move that she's making and how it's being perceived, especially by the men around her, especially mm-hmm. in this time period. And Rebecca de Moray, I think, is the perfect person to do that. You know, she uh because she's able to do that she has that maturity like and, and you're absolutely right i mean why don't a writer like no that would yeah, be awful no wrong fit <laughs> and yeah. i i have to say too objectively rebecca de mornay is gorgeous oh i mean yeah she uh, she was beautiful in this movie and i mean you know who could forget her from you know a few years back risky business with tom cruise and so mm-hmm. yeah absolutely i mean and i think that's the other thing is like if, if you've seen risky business that's i mean she kind of has that type that same type of character mode you know like yeah. that she's playing that that kind of seductress and in, in everything um but completely in control of what she's doing and why she's doing it for the most part um so yeah and then you know, I think the other part was is that she has the maturity level to be able to then play the repentance that you get in that character here mm-hmm. um, to to truly feel like she is somebody who's kind of sorry for her actions. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I really I think she was a great choice. Um, and by the way, too, I meant to mention before we got too far away from this, um, her and Athos in this movie I felt like was the main driver of everything, even though it's called the three musketeers and there's actually four of them. um, You know, I think that their love story, even just the first time you hear about it, when Athos is telling it like it's not him, um, it's really moving and you feel so sorry for the both of them, but you also understand why it's happening. And so, I, yeah, I think the way that their story wraps up and she dies is kind of, you know, is the way it needed to be, but also you wish it wasn't for them. Yeah. And, and this is something where just reading a little bit, I know that it's kind of changed quite a bit from the book and they've made mm-hmm. both of the characters there more sympathetic. But, you know, I think for the story that they end up telling here and the way they kind of crafted this, this Three Musketeers 
it worked really well. And, um, you know, the, like you said, she's kind of this linchpin because she's the link between Connor Richelieu and his his takeover or his, you know, his uh, planned coup in France. And so I absolutely think you're right. And, and, and it, it brings the story together. So, um, quickly, this is the first time I saw Julie Depley. Uh, and she was, she becomes famous for the, uh, uh, the before sunrise before, you know, after sunset, um, all of those movies with Ethan Hawke. Um, and funny, she's French. She's the only one who has actually, actually has a French accent in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time, I fell in love with her because, yeah, she was beautiful and, you know, D'Artagnan's love interest. And she she plays it really well. <laughs> and again, funny that she's literally the only person in the movie with a French accent. So No, that is funny, especially from a story that's entirely supposed to be about France. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly. The villains here in the movie, um, Tim Curry is just chewing scenery at every moment and with every line, and I really like it. Um, And part of that is it's it's sometimes just refreshing to see a villain who revels in their villainry. Like, he enjoys being the villain. He enjoys being the person who does all these things wrong. And I think it's refreshing to not have the complicated villain who, you know, oh, the reason they're like, he just wants power and he just wants to be able to rule. So and and he's I think he is perfect in the role for this type of movie. You know, like he he is the classic. And this is not uh, a slight against him at all, but he's the classic Disney villain like that comes from their animated features. And he pulls mm-hmm. it off here in live action. Yeah, well, and I mean, anybody that's familiar with Tim Curry's work in general, he's usually a villain in anything he does. Uh, you know, I vividly remember a, another version of Titanic with him as a villain in it, and it just ugh, gives you chills. So he was absolutely the right choice for this character. He definitely takes your attention in every scene he's in. And the scenes where he's, you know, approaching Queen Anne and breathing on her neck. it He's so good, it makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, the he, I think you said it. 100% creep all the time. Yeah, but he's great. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I think that it, as somebody who's driving the story with, you know, uh, the villainy and and our, our main um, villain for the film, like, he's the one you love to hate. You kind of just enjoy uh, hating him. And part of that is because he's having such a good time with his villainy. And I, I think it, again, mm-hmm. just re-watching the film, I think it really works. So, Yeah, he's got it all under control. He's got a plan. He has henchmen to do the dirty work so he doesn't have to get his fancy robe dirty. And, uh, you know, I, I love that most of the film, he's the character. He's totally cool and collected. Until the scene when he's revealing his plan to the king and queen and about to try and kill them again. 
And she says, I'd rather die than sit on the throne beside you. And he finally just loses it, kicks a stool out of the way and says, that could be arranged. (laughs) He's just so good. No, I agree with you. And I I think uh, Michael Wincott as Captain Rochefort next to him, like he is such a great villain, too, because together they make a great pair. They both revel in their villainry. um, And... They love being the bad guy and he just sounds like the bad guy too. And, and like the look and the feel of him, uh, you know, he is the quintessential swashbuckling villain. Like, you know, he's kind of suave and debonair. And yet at the same time, he just, he loves being evil. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, Together, they make a great pair of villains for this movie. And, you know, I, I you could consider uh, Lady de Winter as is uh, a villain as well. But I think th- these two just really pair up nicely. And again, you love it when they die. Mm-hmm. Like, and I think there's something that's sometimes been lost is that, that we have the villains that do evil things that we can be okay with dying, you know, in the end. And like, these are villains where you, you feel vindicated when they have died in the film. And that's really, it's just refreshing to be able to watch that type of movie. Yeah. I, I wanted to add too, I think with Rochefort, it really also was a big deal to have him be the one that killed D'Artagnan's father. So to have that deeper connection for that surprise reveal for D'Artagnan, then when the two of them are fighting, makes it even more meaningful for him to finish him. And I think that it's nice having two villains like this that are so strong together, because like we were saying, you have the one who's really more of like the mastermind in the Cardinal. And then this guy Rochefort is doing the dirty work. Um, And I noticed if you think about it, Princess Bride and the six fingered man, and then very similarly, I think to the character of Rochefort in this movie, why do they always have some weird physical trait like that? Six fingers missing an eye or like Captain Hook is missing a hand. (laughs) I just noticed that. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. That's a good point. And I think part of it is that because, in the villain sense is like we're we're trying to to make them seem less attractive in some way mm-hmm. um and a, a or little, less relatable little, less relatable right um mm-hmm. and like a captain hook you know you you he has a hook for a hand like there's there's something missing from him like uh, maybe that's it something's missing like mm-hmm. there's a piece of them that's already missing and part of that is usually come because of their villainy in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so because that's lost, you can already see that there's a hole in them that needs to be filled by something. And their villainy is not going to fill the hole, right? Um, Even though that's probably what they're longing for. or And it could be even the cause of the disfigurement, like... Mm -hmm losing an eye or captain hook losing a hand you know it's it's result of their villainy uh and so we can already see from the story is that like it doesn't pay to be the villain so yeah but yeah just an observation i also think it's funny when uh uh oliver platt says rochefort isn't that a stinky cheese <laughs> yes <laughs> um 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, so something that I thought was kind of interesting uh, was this idea of like power for power's sake, um, because the king at the end, as he's uh, knighting D'Artagnan, making him a musketeer, he talks about how the world is uncertain uh, and filled with danger and um, honor undermined by power, he says, freedom, sacrifice when the weak are oppressed by the strong, and there are those that oppose these forces. And this idea, like this movie, we kind of see people using power for the sake of getting more power and then power trying to help people. And I thought that that was an interesting dichotomy, you know, and, and you even have the king's men, the musketeers that are in the blue and the cardinal's men that are in the red. And it kind of sets this, uh, you know, like the, the black hats and the white hats, you know, and, and like the good and the bad side. And, and part of that is what do you do with the power you've been given? And what we see here is is clearly that you know, the cardinal is all in this for the power that this will give him to be king so that he can do whatever he wants to do. Whereas that's obviously not how the king is trying to rule. And that's not why, you know, uh, he has his musketeers not only to keep him safe, but to make sure that, you know, everything else in the kingdom is, is proceeding as, as it should. So I just thought that that was really interesting. Um, and, a, and it's a nice little theme there for the movie that kind of plays out through the entire thing. Right. I think it, you definitely see that sort of that quote, absolute power corrupts absolutely, that the cardinal definitely wants absolute power and wants to rule everyone and um, be, you know, this this force to just subjugate everyone beneath him. Whereas... The musketeers, for example, use power when they take his carriage and have the coins to help everyone else. They don't keep it all for themselves because they're greedy. He says, come on, toss them out. People are hungry to D'Artagnan. And so that I think you're definitely right that you're seeing this dichotomy between the two of how power in itself is not necessarily a good or a bad thing it's how you use it and that they definitely show you what it can do when you use it for evil absolutely and and something that you had brought up that i really loved and um i can't believe and i had been thinking about while i was watching the movie and i just totally forgot when i was writing the outline which is usually why i'm like i need to just make sure i'm taking notes but Mm -hmm. the whole idea of like faith and the way faith um can be used by certain people and here you know we totally saw faith be used uh uh, and and because somebody truly believes it like aramis he truly believes uh you know in god and he was studying to be a priest versus the cardinal who is just somebody who's using his religious position to get power um Mm -hmm. and uh, the way in which those two things are diametrically opposed to each other and in the end kind of antithetical to everything that you know faith in something like a religion like christianity com- stands for which is mm-hmm. you know um so i really thought that that was really interesting because uh you see the antithesis to the faith but it's through the person who should be the one that's actually 
showing you what it's like to have real faith. And then you have these guys who are, quote unquote, the outlaws in the film are actually the ones who are most living up to what it means to have honor and freedom and love and truth. And so I thought that was a really great theme that you had pulled out um, here oh, with thanks. the film and, and really a, an important one because we see people misuse this all the time for personal gain. Uh, yeah, I think definitely this was the biggest thing that I always took from this movie because they focus on it so much throughout the movie of just prayer being in different scenes and you seeing Aramis praying for the people that even though they just killed them, he's hoping for, you know, their souls to go to heaven. Um, and, you know, regardless of what you believe, I think that it's interesting to see how this even relates to religion and history in real life, because there were people like this cardinal who were just put in this position, suspecting to be good people, but it was really just a position of power, and they may not have always actually been upholding the beliefs they're supposed to be upholding. And, you know, it, it was that whole discussion of even how, um, like, the separation of church and state became what it is, because back then, church kind of ran everything, and there was this confusion between um, religious beliefs running a country versus separating the two and having government and faith. So I, I think it's fascinating to kind of dive into that aspect of this movie, just the faith and how they discuss it. And then seeing that, that you're talking about too, the, the back and forth between Aramis and Cardinal and how they use that faith. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think what, just to be fair too, I think one of the things that we kind of see uh, Aramis kind of do at the beginning of the film is maybe misuse some of the power that faith gives him. Yeah. Right. You know, uh, and, um, uh, and I, I think what was interesting about that is that there is still some honor in that because the moment he lears that she's married, it's off limits. Mm-hmm. You know, if she he decides to marry that. Right. Exactly. That would have been one thing. Um, but the moment that he realizes she is, it, you know, for him, it's a it's a it's it's a it's a big sin. Like, you know, like it's, mm-hmm. it's a, well, it's not just a sin because it would have been anyway, but it would have been a bigger one. Right. So like, yeah, there there's some lines that you don't cross, you know, um, and and so, yeah, I do think that that's really fascinating um, because. It is, and I think you made this point on the outline, I think it's so true, you know, it's a reflection of the, the times then, but on morals to which we do want to continue to hold true, with, with which we want there to be truth that we hold to, and that, that we have honor as people, that we mm-hmm. um, value freedom, and we respect love, and that we don't want to misuse our faith in any way. Um, and we want to make sure that we're uh, keeping that faith pure um, and, and and not um, mixing it with something that it does not belong, you know, mm-hmm. like, um, so yeah, I, I think uh, there, there's a lot to be said for the fact that this movie kind of has that as a part of it. So lastly, the thing that I was thinking of, the most is that, you know, this was a big soundtrack for me, a big deal. You know, uh, 
part of that was the fact that you know Brian Adams um, sings the the main song "All for Love" with Rod Stewart and Sting. So all three of these big stars together on one song. Um, so I had the soundtrack, listened to this song all the time. But it wasn't just the song. I really enjoyed the music for the movie. It's fun. It's vibrant. It has the feel of what you want for an action-adventure romance movie. Uh, I wish that there was an extended version of the soundtrack itself, just because the score is is really enjoyable. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, (laughs) as a kid, it all came down to me loving that song. Like, I I loved All for Love. It was great. Yeah, it... (sighs) First of all, Brian Adams, and back then in his peak as well, was just incredible. He had such a cool sound to his voice. It was almost kind of raspy. But yeah, yeah, I I love his stuff anyway. And so I was destined to love that song. And then bringing in Sting and Rod Stewart to do it with him. It's this beautiful symphony having the three of them singing in the same song. But I do agree to the soundtrack for the entire movie is perfect for the feel you're going for of this swashbuckler um, adventure movie, you know, the horseback riding, sword fighting, getting into shenanigans um, kind of thing. And it really does especially get across the, um, the depth in some of the scenes. You know, I think that for sure you feel it in that moment, like I said, where Athos is saying goodbye to Lady De Winter. And uh, yeah, I mean, I I did not have any issue at all with the soundtrack and I would listen to it again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, I, so I'm really interested, you know, as we talk through the film, like kind of where you are then with your ratings for the three musketeers hmm. well obviously it's high it's very high thank you k2 but uh <laughs> i had to <laughs> i'm gonna give it a four and a half out of five and a lot of that also is just pure nostalgia and love but i i really just always enjoy rewatching this movie i was glad that you brought up maybe we should talk about it and I, um, you know, I, I like that we've discovered these new things that you can read into it and take from it that maybe you didn't as a kid. So yeah, a four and a half for me. Yeah. I mean, I would say for me personally, this movie still holds up and, and I would encourage like, it, it's a fun movie for anybody to watch. You know, it, I would, I would say, uh, it's a four out of five for me. Um, it, you know, it's just, I had a great time rewatching it, you know, mm-hmm. and that's that's always the goal when you're rewatching something like this. And yeah, I mean, and anybody can say this about just about anything, right? But it, I mean, yeah, it's not perfect, you know, uh, hardly any movie is, but I I feel like and you know, I was thinking about this as I was I was rewatching this one. I feel like we're in a time specifically where people need something joyful and and fun to watch. Mm-hmm. And this is definitely the prescription for that. Uh, so I, if you're if you're just looking for a good old time, this is it. So yeah, I, I we're both recommending you watch the Three Musketeers there on Disney Plus. So um, Christy, though, I'm really interested to see what you might have as a recommendation this week. So uh, I actually recently 
uh, with my husband have been looking back into some comics we used to read and something that I really loved and I've, I've now wanted to pull back out was a run called Gotham City Sirens. Oh yeah. 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 Nice. Uh, uh, Paul Denny actually did the artwork and it was beautiful. And one of my favorite, well, my favorite comic book character actually is Catwoman. So getting to see her paired up with Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy, just the three of them fighting crime together was really interesting. So I highly recommend checking out Gotham City Sirens. Uh, you can probably find it on Amazon or eBay. Yeah, yeah. Or, I mean, I'm sure, you know, if you wanted to check out, you could probably find it if you do digital, like on Comixology, too. Yeah, because, so, uh, yeah. yeah, it would be DC, so it may even be on, um, would it be on the DC uh, app? DC Universe, yeah. If you have DC Universe, it might be there, yeah. too. Absolutely. No, that's great. Um, well, I'm going to recommend, uh, because I just finished it today, and uh, as we're recording this, um, we'll be doing it in a few weeks. And so I'm going to recommend everybody pick up uh, Thrawn Ascendancy Chaos Rising. And I'm not going to give it away, but I definitely think you should read it. It's, yeah, read it. <laughs> so, um, but Christy, if uh, anybody wants to catch up with you uh, and see what else you've got going on, where can they find you? You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Bespin Bell. And I do a couple of other shows. I do a show on the Skywalking Through Neverland Network with my good friend Teresa Delgado called Sabres and Spells. And uh, we're going to be doing an episode sometime in the near future. Uh, sorry, it's been a little hiatus, but she's just got a lot going on and so do I right now. So. Uh, and then I do a show called Planet Leia on the Fanthatrax Network with five other women from around the world talking about Star Wars. Awesome. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, Vero, under the name MattRushing02. Uh, you can find me here on the network doing The Orb with Chris Jones as we talk about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Doing Literary Treks again. We just had our first episode that Chris and I have done and together in a long while. Uh, we had David Mack talking about his latest Star Trek book. Uh, you can find me over on the Nerd Party Network doing two shows. One is called Owl Post. Doing that with Drea Kaufman. We're talking about Harry Potter each and every week, one chapter at a time. And Lynn, uh, you could find me doing aggressive negotiations with John Mills, the Star Wars podcast, and every week uh, just and talk about and really have fun uh, diving into a subject we've been thinking about in Star Wars. So uh, thank you, though, so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? 